Chapter 20 of the Indian Fairy Book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dorothy Godfrey Smith. The Indian Fairy Book by Henry R. Schoolcraft. Chapter 20 The Fire Plume. Wasama was living with his parents on the shore of a large bay far out in the northeast. One day, when the season had commenced for fish to be plenty, the mother of Wasamo said to him, My son, I wish you would go to yonder point and see if you cannot procure me some fish, and ask your cousin to accompany you. Wasamo did so. He set out with his cousin, and in the course of the afternoon they arrived at the fishing ground. The cousin, being the elder, attended to the nets. When these were set in the lake, the youths encamped nearby, using the bark of the birch for a lodge to shelter them through the night. They lit a fire, and while they sat conversing with each other, the moon arose. Not a breath of wind disturbed the smooth surface of the lake. Not a cloud was seen. Wasamo looked out on the water toward their nets, and he saw that the little black spots, which were no other than the floats, had disappeared. Netawis, he said, let us visit our nets. Perhaps we are fortunate. When they drew up the nets, they were rejoiced to see the meshes shining white all over with the glittering prey. They landed in fine spirits and put away their canoe in safety from the winds. Wasamo said the cousin, you cook that we may eat. Wasamo set about the work at once, and soon had his great kettle swung upon its branch, while the cousin lay at his ease upon the other side of the fire. Cousin, said Wasamo, tell me stories or sing me some love songs. The cousin obeyed and sang his plaintive songs, frequently breaking off in the midst of a mournful chant to recite a mirthful story, then, in the midst of Wasamo's laughter, returning to the plaintive ditty, just as it suited his fancy. For Netawis was gay of spirit and shifted his humor faster than the fleecy clouds that appeared and disappeared in the night sky over their heads. In this changeful pastime, the cousin ran his length and then fell away into a silvery sleep, murmuring parts of his song or story, while the moon glided through the branches and gilded his face as though she were enamored of his fair looks. Wasamo, in the meanwhile, had lost the sound of his cousin's voice in the rich simmer of the kettle and when its music pleased his ear the most, as announcing that the fish were handsomely cooked, he lifted the kettle from the fire. He spoke to his cousin, but he received no answer. He went on with his housekeeping alone, and took the wooden ladle and skimmed the kettle neatly, for the fish were very plump and fat. But he had a torch of twisted bark in one hand to give light, and when he came to take out the fish, there was no one to have charge of the torch. The cousin was so happy in his sleep 
with the silver moon kissing his cheeks, that Wasamo had not the heart to call him up. Binding his girdle upon his brow, in this he thrust the torch and went forward to prepare the evening meal, with the light dancing through the green leaves at every turn of his head. He again spoke to his cousin, but gently, to learn whether he was in truth asleep. The cousin murmured, but made no reply, and Wasamo stepped softly about, with the dancing fire-plume lighting up the gloom of the forest at every turn he made. Suddenly he heard a laugh. It was double, or the one must be the perfect echo of the other. To Wasamo there appeared to be two persons at no great distance. Cousin, said Wasamu, some person is near us. I hear a laugh. Awake, and let us look out. The cousin made no answer. Again Wasamu heard the laughter in mirthful repetition, like the ripple of the water brook upon the shining pebbles of the stream. Peering out as far as the line of the torchlight pierced into the darkness, he beheld two beautiful young maidens smiling on him. Their countenances appeared to be perfectly white, like the fresh snow. He crouched down and pushed his cousin, saying in a low voice, Awake, awake! Here are two young women. But he received no answer. His cousin seemed lost to all earthly sense and sound for he lay unmoved, smiling, in the calm light of the moon. Wasamo started up alone and glided toward the strange maidens. As he approached them, he was more and more enraptured with their beauty. But just as he was about to speak to them, he suddenly fell to the earth, and they all three vanished together. The moon shone where they had just stood, but saw them not. Only a gentle sound of music and soft voices accompanied their vanishing, and this wakened the cousin. As Netawis opened his eyes in a dreamy way, he saw the kettle near him. Some of the fish, he observed, were in the bowl. The fire flickered and made light and shadow but nowhere was Wasamo to be seen. He waited, and waited again, in the expectation that Wasamo would appear. Perhaps, thought the cousin, he is gone out again to visit the nets. He looked off that way, but the canoe still lay close by the rock at the shore. He searched and found footsteps in the ashes, and out upon the green ground a little distance, and then they were utterly lost. He was now greatly troubled in spirit, and he called aloud, Wasamo, cousin, cousin, but there was no answer to his call. He called again in his sorrow, louder and louder, Wasamo, Wasamo, cousin, cousin, whither are you gone? but no answer came to his voice of wailing. He started for the edge of the woods, crying as he ran, My cousin! And, Oh, my cousin! 
Hither and thither through the forest he sped with all his fleetness of foot and quickness of spirit. And when at last he found that no voice would answer him, he burst into tears and sobbed aloud. He returned to the fire and sat down. He mused upon the absence of Wasamo with a sorely troubled heart. He may have been playing me a trick, he thought, but it was full time that the trick should be at an end, and Wasamo returned not. The cousin cherished other hopes, but they all died away in the morning light when he found himself alone by the hunting fire. How shall I answer to his friends for Wasamo? thought the cousin. Although his parents are my kindred and are well assured that their son is my bosom friend, will they receive that belief in the place of him who is lost? No, no, they will say that I have slain him and they will require blood for blood. Oh, my cousin, whither are you gone? He would have rested to restore his mind to its peace, but he could not sleep. And without further regard to net or canoe, he set off for the village, running all the way. As they saw him approaching at such speed and alone, they said, Some accident has happened. When he had come into the village, he told them how Wasamo had disappeared. He stated all the circumstances. He kept nothing to himself. He declared all that he knew. Some said, he has killed him in the dark. Others said, it is impossible. They were like brothers. They would have fallen for each other. It cannot be. At the cousin's request, many of the men visited the fish fire. There were no marks of blood. No hasty steps were there to show that any conflict or struggle had occurred. Every leaf on every tree was in its place. And they saw, as the cousin had seen, that the footprints of Wasamo stopped in the wood, as if he had gone no further upon the earth, but had ascended into the air. They returned to the village, and no man was the wiser as to the strange and sudden vanishing of Wasamo. None ever looked to see him more, only the parents, who still hoped and awaited their son's return. The spring, with all its blossoms and its delicate newness of life, came among them. The Indians, assembled from all the country round, to celebrate their spring feast. Among them came the sad cousin of Wasamo. He was pale and thin as the shadow of the shaft that flies. The pain of his mind had changed his features, and wherever he turned his eyes, they were dazzled with the sight of the red blood of his friend. The parents of Wasamo far gone in despair and weary with watching for his return, now demanded the life of Netawis. The village was stirred to its very heart by their loud lamentings, and after a struggle of pity, they decided to give the young man's life to the parents. They said that they had waited long enough. A day was appointed on which the cousin was to yield his life for his friends. 
He was a brave youth, and they bound him only by his word to be ready at the appointed hour. He said that he was not afraid to die, for he was innocent of the great wrong they laid to his charge. A day or two before the time set to take his life, he wandered sadly along the shore of the lake. He looked at the glassy water, and more than once the thought to end his griefs by casting himself in its depths came upon him with such sudden force that only by severe self-control was he able to turn his steps in another direction. He reflected, They will say that I was guilty if I take my own life. No, I will give them my blood for that of my cousin. He walked on with slow steps, but he found no comfort turn where he would. The sweet songs of the forest jarred upon his ear, the beauty of the blue sky pained his sight, and the soft green earth, as he trod upon it, seemed harsh to his foot and sent a pang through every nerve. Oh, where is my cousin? he kept saying to himself. Meanwhile, when Wasamo fell senseless before the two young women in the wood, he lost all knowledge of himself until he awakened in a distant scene. He heard persons conversing. One spoke in a tone of command, saying, Foolish ones, is this the way that you rove about at nights without our knowledge? Put that person you have brought on that couch of yours, and do not let him lie upon the ground. Wasamo felt himself moved. He knew not how and placed upon a couch. Some time after, the spell seemed to be a little lightened, and on opening his eyes, he was surprised to find that he was lying in a spacious and shining lodge, extending as far as the eye could reach. One spoke to him and said, Stranger, awake, and take something wherewith to refresh yourself. He obeyed the command and sat up. On either side of the lodge he beheld rows of people seated in orderly array. At a distance he could see two stately persons who looked rather more in years than the others, and who appeared to exact obedience from all around them. One of them, whom he heard addressed as the old spirit man, spoke to Wasamo. My son, said he, know it was those foolish maidens who brought you hither. They saw you at the fishing ground. When you attempted to approach them, you fell senseless, and at the same moment they transported you to this place. You are now under the earth, but be at ease. We will make your stay with us pleasant. I am the guardian spirit of the sand mountains. They are my charge. I pile them up and blow them about and do whatever I will with them. It keeps me very busy, but I am hale for my age and I love to be employed. I have often wished to get one of your race to marry among us. If you can make up your mind to remain... I will give you one of my daughters, the one who smiled on you first. 
the night you were brought away from your parents and friends. Wasamo dropped his head and made no answer. The thought that he should behold his kindred no more made him sad. He was silent, and the old spirit continued. Your wants will all be supplied, but you must be careful not to stray far from the lodge. I am afraid of that spirit who rules all islands lying in the lakes. He is my bitter enemy, for I have refused him my daughter in marriage. And when he learns that you are a member of my family, he will seek to harm you. There is my daughter, added the old spirit, pointing toward her. Take her. She shall be your wife. Forthwith, Wasamo and the old spirit's daughter sat near each other in the lodge, and they were man and wife. One evening, the old spirit came in after a busy day's work out among the sand hills, in the course of which he had blown them all out of shape with great gusts of wind, strewn them about in a thousand directions, and brought them back and piled them up in all sorts of misshapen heaps. At the close of this busy day, when the old spirit came in very much out of breath, he said to Wasamo, Son-in-law, I am in want of tobacco. None grows about this dry place of mine. You shall return to your people and procure me a supply. It is seldom that the few who pass these sand hills offer me a piece of tobacco. It is a rare plant in these parts, but when they do, it immediately comes to me. Just so, he added, putting his hand out of the side of the lodge and drawing in several pieces of tobacco. Someone, passing at that moment, had offered it as a fee to the old spirit to keep the sandhills from blowing about till they had got by. Other gifts besides tobacco came in the same way to the side of the lodge. Sometimes a whole bear, then a wampum robe, then a string of birds and the sand spirits altogether led an easy life, for they were not at the trouble to hunt or clothe themselves, and whenever the housekeeping began to fall short, nothing would happen but a wonderful storm of dust, all the sand hills being straightway put in an uproar, and the contributions would at once begin to pour in at the side windows of the lodge, till all wants were supplied. After Wasamo had been among these curious people several months, the old sand spirit said to him, Son-in-law, you must not be surprised at what you will see next. For since you have been with us, you have never known us to go to sleep. It has been summer, when the sun never sets here where we live. But now... What you call winter is coming on. You will soon see us lie down, and we shall not rise again till the spring. Take my advice. Do not leave the lodge. I have sure knowledge that that navish island spirit is on the prowl, and as he has command of a particular kind of storm which comes from the southwest, he only waits his opportunity to catch you abroad 
and do you mischief. Try and amuse yourself. That cupboard, pointing to a corner of the lodge, is never empty, for it is there that all the offerings are handed in while we are asleep. It is never empty, and... But ere the old sand spirit could utter another word, a loud rattling of thunder was heard, and instantly not only the old spirit, but everyone of his family vanished out of sight. When the storm had passed by, they all reappeared in the lodge. This sudden vanishing and reappearance occurred at every tempest. You are surprised, said the old spirit, to see us disappear when it thunders. The reason is this. That noise which you fancy is thunder is our enemy, the island spirit, hallooing on his way home from the hunt. We get out of sight that we may escape the necessity of asking him to come in and share our evening meal. We are not afraid of him, not in the least. Just then it chanced to thunder again, and Wasama observed that his father-in-law made extraordinary despatch to conceal himself, although no stranger was in view at all resembling in any way the island spirit. Shortly after this, the season of sleep began, and one by one they laid themselves down to the long slumber. The old spirit was the last to drop away, and before he yielded, he went forth and had his last sport with the sand hills. He so tossed and vexed the poor hills, scattered them to and fro, and whirled them up in the air and far over the land, that it was days and days before they got back to anything like their natural shape. While his relations were enjoying this long sleep, Wasamo amused himself as best he could. The cupboard never failed him once, for visited when he would, he always found a fresh supply of game and every other dainty which his heart desired. But his chief pastime was to listen to the voices of the travelers who passed by the window at the side of the lodge, where they made their requests for comfortable weather and an easy journey. These were often mingled with loud complainings, such as, Ho! Oh, how the sand jumps about! Take away that hill. I am lost. Old sand spirit, where are you? Help this way. Which indicated that such as were journeying through the hills had their own troubles to encounter. As the spring light of the first day of spring shone into the lodge, the whole family arose and went about the affairs of the day as though they had been slumbering only for a single night. The rest seemed to have done the old spirit much good, for he was very cheerful. Putting his head forth from the window for a puff at a sand hill, which was his prime luxury in a morning, he said to Wasamo, Son-in-law, you have been very patient with our long absence from your company, and you shall be rewarded. In a few days you may start with your wife to visit your relations. You can be absent one year, but at the end of that time you must return.
When you get to your home village, you must first go in alone. Leave your wife at a short distance from the lodge, and when you are welcome, then send for her. When there, do not be surprised that she disappears whenever you hear it thunder. He added with a sly look, That old island spirit has a brother down in that part of the country. You will prosper in all things, for my daughter is very diligent. All the time that you pass in sleep, she will be at work. The distance is short to your village. A path leads directly to it, and when you get there, do not forget my wants, as I stated to you before. Wasamo promised obedience to these directions, and at the appointed time set out in company with his wife. They traveled on a pleasant course, his wife leading the way, until they reached a rising ground. At the highest point of this ground, she said, we shall soon get to your country. It suddenly became broad day, as they came upon a high bank. Then they passed, unwet, for a short distance under the lake, and presently emerged from the water at the sandbanks, just off the shore where Wasamo had set his nets on the night when he had been borne away by the two strange females. Wasamo now left his wife sheltered in a neighboring wood while he advanced toward the village alone. When he turned the first point of land by the lake, he beheld his cousin as he walked the shore, musing sadly, and from time to time breaking forth in mournful cries. With the speed of lightning, the cousin rushed forward. Wasamo, Wasamo, he cried, is it indeed you? Whence have you come, O oh my cousin? They fell upon each other's necks and wept aloud. And then, without further delay or question, the cousin ran off with breathless despatch to the village. He seemed like a shadow upon the open ground he sped so fast. He entered the lodge where sat the mother of Wasamo in mourning for her son. Hear me, said the cousin. I have seen him whom you accuse me of having killed. He will be here even while we speak. He had scarcely uttered these words when the whole village was astir in an instant. All ran out and strained their eyes to catch the first view of him whom they had thought dead. And when Wasamo came forward, they at first fell from him as though he had been in truth one returned from the spirit land. He entered the lodge of his parents. They saw that it was Wasamo living, breathing, and as they had ever known him and joy lit up the lodge circle as though a new fire had been kindled in the eyes of his friends and kinsfolk. He related all that had happened to him from the moment of his leaving the temporary night lodge with the flame on his head. He told them of the strange land in which he had sojourned during his absence. He added to his mother, apart from the company, that he was married, and that he had left his wife at a short distance from the village. She went out immediately in search of her. 
they soon found her in the wood, and all the women in the village conducted her in honor to the lodge of her new relations. The Indian people were astonished at her beauty, at the whiteness of her skin, and still more that she was able to talk with them in their own language. The village was happy, and the feast went on as long as the supply held out. All were delighted to make the acquaintance of the old sand spirit's daughter, and as they had heard that he was a magician and guardian of great power, the tobacco which he had sent for by his son-in-law came in great abundance with every visitor. The summer and fall which Wasamo thus passed with his parents and the people of his tribe were prosperous with all the country. The cousin of Wasamo recovered heart and sang once more his sad or mirthful chants, just as the humor was upon him. But he kept close by Wasamo and watched him in all his movements. He made it a point to ask many questions of the country he came from, some of which his cousin replied to, but others he left entirely unanswered. At every thunderstorm, as the old sand spirit had foreboded, the wife of Wasamo disappeared, much to the astonishment of her Indian company. And to their greater wonder, she was never idle, night or day. When the winter came on, Wasamo prepared for her a comfortable lodge to which she withdrew for her long sleep, and he gave notice to his friends that they must not disturb her, as she would not be with them again until the spring returned. Before lying down, she said to her husband, No one but yourself must pass on this side of the lodge. The winter passed away with snows outside and sports and stories in the lodge, and when the sap of the maple began to flow, the wife of Wasamo wakened and immediately set about work as before. She helped at the maple trees with the others, and as if luck were in her presence, the sugar harvest was greater than had been ever known in all that region. The gifts of tobacco after this came in even more freely than they had at first, and as each giver brought his bundle to the lodge of Wasamo, he asked for the usual length of life, for success as a hunter, and for a plentiful supply of food. They particularly desired that the sand hills might be kept quiet, so that their lands might be moist and their eyes clear of dust to sight the game. Wasamo replied that he would mention each of their requests to his father-in-law. The tobacco was stored in sacks, and on the outside of the skins, that there might be no mistake as to their wants, each one who had given tobacco had painted and marked in distinct characters the totem or family emblem of his family and tribe. These the old sand spirit could read at his leisure and do what he thought best for each of his various petitioners. When the time for his return arrived, Wasamo warned his people that they should not follow him or attempt to take note how he disappeared. 
He then took the moose-skin sacks filled with tobacco and bade farewell to all but Netawis. The latter insisted on the privilege of attending Wasamo and his wife for a distance, and when they reached the sandbanks, he expressed the strongest wish to proceed with them on their journey. Wasamo told him that it could not be, that only spirits could exert the necessary power, and that there were no such spirits at hand. They then took an affectionate leave of each other, Wasamo enjoining upon his cousin, at risk of his life, not to look back when he had once started to return. The cousin, sore at heart but constrained to obey, parted from them, and as he walked sadly away, he heard a gliding noise as of the sound of waters that were cleaved. He returned home and told his friends that Wasamo and his wife had disappeared, but that he knew not how. No one doubted his word in anything now. Wasamo with his wife soon reached their home at the hills. The old sand spirit was in excellent health and delighted to see them. He hailed their return with open arms, and he opened his arms so very wide that when he closed them, he not only embraced Wasamo and his wife, but all of the tobacco sacks which they had brought with them. The requests of the Indian people were made known to him. He replied that he would attend to all, but that he must first invite his friends to smoke with him. Accordingly, he at once dispatched his pipe-bearer and confidential aid to summon various spirits of his acquaintance, and set the time for them to come. Meanwhile, he had a word of advice for his son-in-law, Wasamo. My son, said he, some of these manitos that I have asked to come here are of a very wicked temper and I warn you especially of that island spirit who wished to marry my daughter. He is a very bad-hearted monado, and would like to do you harm. Some of the company, however, you will find to be very friendly. A caution for you. When they come in, do you sit close by your wife? If you do not, you will be lost." She only can save you, for those who are expected to come are so powerful that they will otherwise draw you from your seat and toss you out of the lodge as though you were a feather. You have only to observe my words, and all will be well. Wasamo took heed to what the old spirit said and answered that he would obey. About midday, the company began to assemble, and such a company Wasamo had never looked on before. There were spirits from all parts of the country, such strange-looking persons, and in dresses so wild and outlandish. One entered who smiled on him. This, Wasamo was informed, was a spirit who had charge of the affairs of a tribe in the north, and he was as pleasant and cheery a spirit as one would wish to see. Soon after, 
Wasamo heard a great rumbling and roaring, as of waters tumbling over rocks, and presently, with a vast bluster, and fairly shaking the lodge with his deep-throated hail of welcome to the old sand spirit, in rolled another, who was the guardian spirit and special director of a great cataract or waterfall not far off. Then came with crashing steps the owner of several whirlwinds, which were in the habit of raging about in the neighboring country. And following this one, glided in a sweet-spoken, gentle-faced little spirit who was understood to represent a summer gale that was accustomed to blow in at the lodge doors toward evening, and to be particularly well-disposed toward young lovers. The last to appear was a great rocky-headed fellow, and he was twice as stony in his manners. He swaggered and strided in, and raised such a commotion with his great green blanket when he shook it that Wasamo was nearly taken off his feet, and it was only by main force that he was able to cling by his wife. This, which was the last to enter, was that wicked island spirit who looked grimly enough at Wasamo's wife as he passed in. Soon after, the old sand spirit, who was a great speechmaker, arose and addressed the assembly. Brothers, he said, I have invited you to partake with me of the offerings made by the mortals on earth, which have been brought by our relation, pointing to Asamo. Brothers, you see their wishes and desires plainly set forth here laying his hand upon the figured moose-skins. The offering is worthy of our consideration. Brothers, I see nothing on my part to hinder our granting their requests. They do not appear to be unreasonable. Brothers, the offer is gratifying. It is tobacco, an article which we have lacked until we scarcely knew how to use our pipes. Shall we grant their requests? One thing more I would say. Brothers, it is this. There is my son-in-law. He is mortal. I wish to detain him with me, and it is with us jointly to make him one of us. Hoke, hoke, run through the whole company of spirits, and hoke, hoke, they cried again. And it was understood that the petitioners were to have all they asked and that Wasamo was thenceforward fairly accepted as a member of the great family of spirits. As a wedding gift, the old spirit promised his son-in-law one request, which should be promptly granted. Let there be no sand squalls among my father's people for three months to come, said Wasamo. So shall it be, answered the old sand spirit. The tobacco was now divided in equal shares among the company. They filled their pipes, and huge pipes they were, and such clouds they blew that they rushed forth out of the lodge and brought on night in all the country round about several hours before its time. After a time passed in silence, the spirits rose up 
and bearing off their tobacco sacks, went smoking through the country, losing themselves in their own fog till a late hour in the morning, when all of their pipes being burnt out, each departed on his own business. The very next day, the old sand spirit, who was very much pleased with the turn affairs had taken at his entertainment, addressed Wasamu. Son-in-law, I have made up my mind to allow you another holiday as an acknowledgement of the handsome manner in which you acquitted yourself of your embassy. You may visit your parents and relatives once more to tell them that their wishes are granted and to take your leave of them forever. You can never after visit them again. Wasamo at once set out, reached his people, and was heartily welcomed. They asked for his wife, and Wasamo informed them that she had tarried at home to look after a son, a fine little sand spirit, who had been born to them since his return. Having delivered all of his messages and passed a happy time, Wasamo said, I must now bid you all farewell forever. His parents and friends raised their voices in loud lamentation. They clung to him, and as a special favor which he could now grant being himself a spirit, he allowed them to accompany him to the sandbanks. They all seated themselves to watch his last farewell. The day was mild, the sky clear, not a cloud appearing to dim the heavens, or a breath of wind to ruffle the tranquil waters. A perfect silence fell upon the company. They gazed with eager eyes fastened on Wasamo as he waded out into the water, waving his hands. They saw him descend more and more into the depths. They beheld the waves close over his head, and a loud and piercing wail went up which rent the sky. They looked again. A red flame, as if the sun had glanced on a billow, lighted the spot for an instant. But the feather of flames, Wasamo of the fire plume, had disappeared from home and kindred and the familiar paths of his youth forever. End of chapter 20 Recording by Dorothy Godfrey Smith